welcome everybody. Well, it seems quite a while ago when we started this particular series. And we started off by saying that you didn't need to have a canoe to come on the course. Uh, but that, it, that, that picture, for those of you who only just come on the last one, uh, just to say that we, we started certainly with thinking that, that, that the exploration of truth, particularly ultimate truth, can be a phenomenal adventure. Now, some of you may say, well, I, I give up the... I'm, I'm not, I'm not even going to try and do that. I'll leave that to other people cleverer than I. But if you once get a sense of it, if you once get a sense, actually, I think that gives me a clue. I think I'm getting somewhere there. It is actually phenomenally exciting. More exciting than climbing mountains or going on uh, glacial lakes in a canoe or whatever. So I'm hope uh, the fact that you're here tonight is great. Every preacher dreads running a course and the, the number's sort of going down every week. <laughs> so by the time you get to the, the end of it, there's you, the cat, and the next door neighbour, and that's about your lot. So thank you all for coming. We appre appreciate you coming. And uh, we're going to launch now into our final one. Uh, the final one uh, is in the image of God. And I think of all the titles that I've chosen, that one would be the one that will be most difficult to get underneath and to think, well, what is he going to talk about? And people have said to me, what are you doing? And I say, in the image of God. They go, oh, yeah, okay. Um, I mean, there's a, put it this way, there's a phenomenal amount of publicity today that suggests that we're not in the image of God at all, but we're in the image of an ape or an animal, you know what I mean, that we're, that we're actually related to the lower order of things. We've somehow climbed up out of the lower strata and here we are, now we've reached our pinnacle and who knows, we may go on to be transhuman and all sorts of other amazing and marvellous things. The Bible says, no, not so. Uh, our inheritance is actually uh, much higher and greater than we have any comprehension of, that we were created in the image of God. Uh, we may have certain characteristics that are common to the animal world. Obviously, we've got DNA and chemicals and all sorts of things like they've got, but we are a quantum leap above them. We've been made with a high dignity, with a phenomenal purpose uh, for our lives. And I think for me, the heart most heartbreaking thing through the years has been to see men and women that never really realise who they are. You know, they, and they believe the lie that we are just um, intelligent monkeys or, you know, slightly evolved animals and don't understand that actually we are much, much more. Okay, so we're going to have four aspects. That's five, isn't it? Yeah, that's four. Uh, four. Four aspects to our talk tonight, which may not mean much to you either, but hopefully they will uh, make sense as we go along. First of all, we're going to look at God's complexity. You would expect that God would not be easy to understand. And certainly from the very first book of the Bible, we get clues that there's more to God than meets the eye. So that's number one. Secondly, we're going to look at the coming of Jesus. The coming of Jesus, if you like, opened the whole thing up about who God was. Suddenly, somebody is moving among us that's sort of like, does God things uh, among men. And you can get the sense of awe and wonder as you read through the Gospels as they, uh, as they witness these things. And we're trying to piece it all together. So we're going to look at Jesus coming into the world. Then we're going to look at the Trinity. The Bible says, you know, kind of, uh, that God is, is a three in one. There are three persons in one. That's kind of classic church teaching for a couple of thousand years. And there's no reason to quarrel with that as far as I'm concerned. But that has many implications for humanity because we are created in the image of God. 
So what I'm going to suggest to you tonight is that it is because God is the way he is that we are the way we are. And I'm hoping that there'll be a few clues that will be practical, that will help us to live our lives, to make our relationships, to live in families, and so on and so on. Okay, so that's what we're going to do. Number one then, God's complexity. That is an old master. I don't know why they've shown God as being a bit bald there, but there you go. They obviously thought old boys get bald. Well, some of them do, I have to confess. Uh, but uh, that's, that's a picture of the Trinity by some old master. That's just the background. And I wanted to sort of lay down a few things that you need to go right to the beginning of the Bible for. And we're looking in the book of Genesis. And these are only hints at the complexity that the Bible begins to reveal as we go through it. So in Genesis chapter 1 it says, uh, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. You say, well I've heard that before, well what is there about that? Well it's very interesting that the word for God in the Old Testament is actually a plural word, Elohim. And uh, you say, well does that mean that there are more than one God? Well no, interestingly with that plural word you get a singular verb. So there seems to be an implication from the beginning, I wouldn't say it's strong, but it is there nonetheless, that there is more than meets the eye when we're talking about God. There is a kind of multiplicity within the Godhead. There is one God, but somehow it's more complicated than that. Uh, if we go on to verse 26 of Genesis chapter 1, uh, we find that the mystery deepens. And then God said, let us make man in our image. After our... Well, who was it? Who was he including in that? You know, there's a group of them there talking about this. We're going to make man in our image. Well, you say, well, maybe it was angels. Well, it couldn't be angels. Angels are not in the, in the same likeness of God. They're not in the same league. It looks like there was a band of equals there that were discussing what they were going to do. And they say, let us make man in our image. In chapter 3 of Genesis and verses 21 to 22, we get another interesting clue. Um... And the Lord made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So regardless of the other things that that, that raises, it again raises this sense, even in the beginning of the Bible, which, you know, Genesis is actually a remarkable book. You know, when you start to read it literally, you start to see all sorts of things. And right there in the beginning, on numbers of occasions, there is an implication that there is more than a simple solitary unity. That God is one, but he's not solitary. There is community within his oneness, at least as far as I can see it. Uh, if we look in Genesis 18, a little bit further on, uh, we find a very interesting story of God visiting Abraham. And verse 1, The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. He was probably having a bit of a siesta, as you would. And Abraham looked up and he saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. He knew there was something Kind of, these were not just ordinary people. You know, he bowed when he saw them. And he said, if I have found favour in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought, and then you all may wash, uh, wash your feet and rest under this tree. And let me get you something to eat so that you can be refreshed, and then go to your, on your way, now that you have come to your servant. 
Very well, they answered. Do as you say. You think, think how'd that come out? I mean, did they come out like unison or harmony? Or did just one speak for the three? I don't know. We don't know, but I find it very interesting that here, right at the beginning, that Moses is visited by a threesome that he speaks to as an individual and, and says, is God. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah, quick, he said, typical bloke, get three sears of fine flour and knead it and bake some bread. I mean, how long is that going to take? Well, there you go. Obviously, the three visitors to Abraham waited around. Then he ran to the herd, selected a choice, tender calf, gave it to a servant who hurried to prepare it. He then brought some curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared and set these before them. And while they ate, he stood near them under a tree. I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall when that was going on. Where is your wife, Sarah? They asked him. There in the tent, he said. And the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which was behind him. And then, of course, the story goes on. But don't you find that interesting, that here, right at the beginning, when we're not told anything about a triune God, we find that there is... There is some kind of multiplicity within the Godhead. If we then go to Deuteronomy 6, we find that the Bible still holds uh, to the one God. In verse 4 of chapter 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So it's complicated. You know what I mean? We're not, we're not told there are three gods. We're simply given the hint that there is more to God than a singularity. But at the same time, we're told that God yet, nonetheless, is one God. So that's, the kind of, that's my introductory point, the complexity of God. Okay. This, of course, is a major issue for all sorts of faiths. I mean, that's the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem. And there is written in Arabic around the dome, I believe, among a number of things, that God has no son. And that is the view of Islam. That's how they deal with the question of, of, a, of a multiple God. They say, no, it's not. Got, Allah is one. There is only one. Simple one. Singularity one. End of story. Anybody else, the best they can be is a prophet. So they say Jesus was a prophet. A great prophet, but only a prophet. Of course, he said more than that for himself, but that's the conclusion they come to. The Baha'i faith says Jesus would have been a manifestation of God. There have been many of them. God, as it were, appears in different forms and different people down through history, and that's it. But God is alone one, so that's how they deal with it. Sikhism says that Jesus would have been a holy man, uh, but not God. Uh, Judaism says God is one, plain and simple. Even when the Messiah comes, he will not be God. I mean, he will be the Messiah. He will be anointed of God, but not God. Um, Jehovah's Witnesses, of course, would be a, a, a sect that we would be familiar with in our own country more. Um, I think they say that Jesus is a son of God. So he's, he's a son of God, definitely. You can't really get away from that, but not uniquely the son of God. Not made of the same stuff that God was made of. Not like any other son would be made of the same stuff as his father. That would be what the Jehovah's Witnesses say. So the question really about Jesus is kind of central to what we're talking about tonight, certainly in this first part, in the nature and the reality of, of the deity, of, what, of who God is. 
Okay. So it's Jesus coming into the world that, it, that really, well, I was going to say throws the cat among the pigeons, but that would be a wrong way to put it. It's Jesus coming into the world that totally opens it up. And we find this, of course, as we go through the New Testament. I've, I've just picked out one here, which I've tried to illustrate with a, a nice picture. In Mark 4 and 35, that, that day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. And leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. I mean, these were fishermen. They were used to the Lake of Galilee. They were used to its strange moods and so on. They probably wouldn't have chosen to be out where they, they, they can have because it's like a bowl. It's quite it's below sea level so that the, the gales and storms can suddenly sweep into it without warning. But I think they would have seen them. They probably wouldn't have chosen. But he said, let's, let's go. So they said, well, let's go. Jesus was in the stern sleeping on a cushion. And the disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? I mean, what, what, what a load of old wind. Well, no, I would have been the same. He got up and he rebuked the wind and he said to the waves, Quiet, be still. And then the wind died down. And it was completely... Can you imagine what that must have been like to, to see that actually happen? You know what I mean? When you look out at nature in all its, you know, raw fury and power, the idea that you could speak to it is like a pipe dream. You'd never, you'd never imagine that such a thing could uh, ever happen. Um, and uh, he, he said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? Well, they were terrified. And they asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. There are a number of times when they said, what is this about? What's going on here? You know, a massive impact that he had upon the people. Now, you could say, well, they were a simple people. They were easily impressed. But I would be quite impressed if somebody stood up in the midst of a great big storm and said, please be still. Stay quiet. Calm down. And he actually did it. So while the Trinitarian uh, nature of God is, is hinted at, probably, implicit in the Old Testament. It's Jesus, as we've said, coming into the world that forces the issue into the open. People had to come to a conclusion, and you can tell as we go through the Gospels, and if you haven't done it, read through the Gospels. Uh, that can be your homework. Uh, you read through the Gospels, and you find again and again, they're trying to, who, what manner of man, who is he? Now, I want to just do a little bit now, thinking about Jesus, what manner of man he was, and, and draw out two uh, apparently paradoxical things. First of all, there is a strong sense that he is, he is a, a person of massive stature. You know, not like any other men that any of them had ever seen, who outranked everybody, uh, even to the point where they would have said, and the Bible seems to indicate that he was he was on the same league as God himself, equal with the Father. But there is also lots of other passages that suggest that he, that he was under the Father, that he submitted himself to the Father's will. So how do you... I'm going to try and reconcile those two if I can. So it's first of all then equal with the Father. Whereas we've already hinted at, Jesus did all sorts of things that were, that were kind of God-like things. They, they were not the sort of things that people would normally be able to do. And uh, in John 11... You've got the famous story of uh, Lazarus and verse 38. 
And Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odour, for he has been there for four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Well, I mean, that's very godlike, isn't it? I mean, he'd been four days in the tomb. Not only is he, is he risen, he doesn't smell. He should do. How did he do that? I mean, how do you do that kind of level of a miracle? Well, you can only, God can do it. And Jesus certainly did it. Uh, Luke 5 and verses 17 to 26. Only going to read a couple here, but as I say, read through the, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, and you'll find this kind of stuff popping up all over the place. I can remember as a young person when I first read it. In verse 17 of chapter 5, one day as he was teaching, Pharisees and the teachers of the law who come from every village of Galilee and from Judea, Jerusalem, were sitting there and the power of the Lord was present for him to heal the sick. It's interesting that the power of the Lord was present. Not, not, it, the implication is it wasn't always there. We don't know why it was, but it was there on that day. Some men came carrying a paralytic on a mat and they tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. I'm sure you'll be familiar with this story. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and they lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd, right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Precisely. That's a very good question. Jesus knew what they were thinking and he asked, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or to say, get up and walk. That you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Only God can forgive sins, but the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. He said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, take up your, uh, get up, take up your mat and go home. Immediately, he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on and went home praising God. And everyone was amazed and they gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and they said, we have seen remarkable things today. You find that kind of recurs as you go through it. C.S. Lewis once said, it often passes us by what an amazing thing it was for Jesus to forgive somebody's sins. He said, it's a bit like you'd be going down the road and you'd see two neighbours having an argument and one of them punches the other one on the nose and you come along and you say to the, to the, the guilty man, it's okay, I forgive you. 
You had nothing to do with it. You didn't get punched on the nose. The neighbor that got punched on the nose would be well, uh, well justified saying, who, are you? who do you think you are that you're forgiven him sins that he did to me? But I mean, the Bible actually assumes that all sin ultimately is primarily towards God. So only God has the authority to forgive sins. For even sins that apparently were done to somebody else. Even sins that were done to third parties. He can, and Jesus does it. He takes it upon himself. He doesn't know what this guy said. He doesn't know what he's involved in. He doesn't know how many people he's hurt and wounded and troubled through his life. But he says, I forgive you. It all. And they say, only God can do that. And they're right. I thought that was very, very interesting. So he made outrageous claims as well. In John 14 and uh, verses 6 through to 10, Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on you do know him and have seen him. And Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. I mean, that's outra- that is outrageous. I mean, you can't, you could, a great prophet wouldn't say that. You know what I mean? No, no other great leader, guru, or anything, as far as I know, in any religious system in the world has ever made any claims that even begin to approach what Jesus said about himself. He also says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and nobody can come to God by me. That's outrageous. It's either outrageous or it's true. So in the end, we're left with, you you can't, as as somebody, I think again, C.S. Lewis said, you can't have the luxury of saying Jesus was a good man. It's, It's not. He's either who he said he was or he's a charlatan and a fool and outrageous. He either is the Son of God or he isn't the Son of God. If he isn't, he has no right to make those sorts of claims. So you see, just looking at Jesus' own things that he said, if you've seen me, you know, if you want to see what God looks like, hey, here I am. I mean, I know he didn't say it like that, but you see what I'm saying. You think, come on. Okay, Uh, in John's Gospel in chapter 1, uh, there is an amazing passage. I'm going to take a minute on that. <laughs> You'll see that in, uh, I put that Greek word there, logos. It's the word logos um, in Greek. I, th- I thought I'd put it up there in Greek for a bit of show. Um, okay, and, and the word logos is the word that is translated word because literally it can mean a word, but it's also the word from which we get logic. And, uh, I mean, Terry was just saying earlier tonight, he didn't have a, 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 a lodgy in something, didn't you? Was that, well, they did that on the advert, didn't they? I haven't got a, haven't got a lodgy. Was it, was, is that a, an, an ology? That's it, I haven't got an ology in something. All the, uh, so that's the word for which we get, that we get from logos. So the word logos is a much richer word. You've got to translate it with something, but it's much more than just a word. It, it carries with it the sense of reason. You know, I mean, when you think of um, geology, that is the reason behind the earth. If you look at um, uh, geography, no, that doesn't use that word, does it? <laughs> um, uh, what's another logy? 
Biology. That's it. That's the reason behind the bios, between the reason behind living things and how they work. So it, it all comes from the word logos. And the Greeks had a they they'd abandoned the old the old gods of Greek by this time, many of them, and intellectuals had come to realize that behind everything there seemed to be a kind of logic. There seemed to be a reason. There seemed to be a mind. There seemed to be some kind of thought. They couldn't, you know what I mean? We've managed to get away from that in our modern life. We think it's all a big accident. But the Greeks were certain that there was something or someone that was behind everything, and they called that something or someone the logos, the reason behind it all. And then here John takes it up, and he says, in the beginning was the word, the reason behind everything. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. So what John is saying is that the, 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 the brains behind it all the co-creator of the universe visited this planet. And there in verse 14 of that chapter, it says, The Word became flesh. The Logos became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, glory of the only begotten Son. So there you've got, you got a whole passage. I mean, there is such a lot in that. That is outstanding. That puts the rank of Jesus right high. He was there with God. So they're separate. There's a clear sense of implying there's a multiplicity within the Godhead, but he was God. It doesn't mean that he was the Father, but he was made of the same stuff that God was made of. He was made of God stuff, if I put that. We're all humans, but they are, they are God stuff. Um, and so he was God. He was also there in the very beginning with God. They were together in communion, in fellowship. They were together when they said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. He remembers that because he was there. And everything was made through him. So he was, he was the agent of it. Under the Father, he brought forth the stuff that we see and the reality of it. He was the source of life and light that gives light to every man. The inspiration that shines in the heart, that brings good forth, often out of evil. I mean, this is, you know what I mean? Every good instinct that you've ever had has come from him who is the light. So, I mean, that's amazing to, to me when you actually look at those, those words. When you come here to, oh, sorry, gone back the wrong way. Uh, when you come here to Colossians, you find another one of those really giant passages that, that seems to sort of show, whoa, this is, this is, this is something. Yeah, this is not, we're not talking gentle Jesus, meek and mild. We're not talking about poor, bedraggled, crucified, ruined man. We're talking about one whose, whose ages go to the dawn of time. We're talking about one that was there in the very beginning. We're talking about one that brought forth planets and stars. So in Colossians 1 and verse 15, it says, He is the image of the invisible God. He's the visible God, but the invisible God become visible. If you want to see what God's like, look at me. The first, firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. I mean, that's, that's very high. I mean, by the side of that, the, the, 
the leaders of men, the presidents and kings, are nothing. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. I mean, it's very interesting. Scientists are, are trying to plumb the depths of atomic structures and the, the particles and the things that kind of that make everything that we know, the entire universe, and they have no idea what actually holds it all together. What strange forces there are, the strong nuclear forces and the gravity. These forces, nobody really understands how they work. How does gravity work? How does the sun, 93 million miles away, exercise a pull upon the earth? All that way away. I won't answer it for questions now. I'll come back to you later. Uh, so where was I? Oh yeah, here we go. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. That's what the Bible says about Jesus. For God, now you, you know what I mean, you can either believe it or you don't believe it. But you need a reason if you don't believe it. If you haven't got a reason why you don't believe it, then you need to consider it and think about it. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. All, everything that God is, was in him. Wow. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Wow. So that's what he did. So if you put that down there to kind of summarize it, the Bible says here that he was in the image of the Father. He was with the Father from the beginning. He was made of the same stuff that the Father was made of. Everything was created by him. In him was light and life and everything else. He holds everything together and all God's fullness is in him. He will make peace through his cross, which is the central uh, uh, purpose that he came into the earth to fulfill. So, I mean, interestingly here, it starts off by saying he is the firstborn over all creation, and that maybe is worth a pause for a moment. The Bible teaches on a number of occasions that he is unique because he is born as the Son of God. I mean, we are made, we are created, we can be adopted, but we're not born children of God in the way that he is. All else was created, he was born. I mean, I've, I've used, the, I've used the, the illustration before. Of, I, I used to make models, and I, I had some models that I, um, that I spent quite a long time fashioning. I used to make model galleons. I haven't got any at the moment because I sold them all. I wish I hadn't now, but there you go. That's the way of it. But I, I, used, I put a lot of care and trouble into making these things. But I've got three children. I wouldn't say I haven't put a lot of care and trouble into making them, but it was quite fun, actually. But shouldn't dive shouldn't digress at that point uh, but the thing is there is a there is a massive difference between my children and my models between between what was born from me and what I made you see what I'm saying so there, so there's a sense in which that Jesus is born from the father he comes from the father in a way that nothing else was and uh, and so uh, he is uniquely born he carries the Father's genes in a way that we do not. He's equal with the Father, but the Father is eternally of the Father. And this is the thing, I mean, it's interesting, as, as my children get older, uh, we slowly changing position. When they were young, I was, the, I was the Father, and they did what I said. Now I notice a subtle change happening, that they're bigger than me, and I tend to do what they say, because you're not, you know, you're not eternally a parent to your children. 
You know what I mean? We're all, we're all at the same level. I mean, your ideal is that you become friends with your children. If you've achieved that, then that's good. I think you've probably done pretty well. But with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Father is eternally the Father. He is always the Father. That doesn't change. And Jesus is eternally the Son. That doesn't change. That has some interesting dynamics. And you might think some interesting uh, pressures. So first of all, then, take a long time on that. The Bible seems to indicate that he was, he, he was of the rank. He was equal with the Father. He was up there at that kind of level. But there are also a number of passages that seem to indicate that he was also under the Father, in some way submitted. Probably the, one of the best readings to go for is in Mark's Gospel and chapter 14 and verse 35 and 36, where Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. It says, Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. A famous passage where Jesus in the end says, Father, I'll do it your way. I'll submit myself to your will. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In John 8 and verse 28 to 30, uh, we find, a, I think, a quite an insightful passage where Jesus said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am the one that I claim to be. In other words, when I'm crucified, you'll know. And that I do nothing on my own, but I speak just what the Father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me. I mean, John's Gospel gives more insight into the inner relationship of Jesus with his Father, probably than any other of the Gospels. You get loads of gems there, so don't forget, go home and read the Gospels for your homework. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. It won't take you long, but it'll be worth doing. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. Now listen to this, for I always do what pleases him. Can you imagine that? I mean, can you imagine that Jesus, though he ranks at the very level with God, he's never had his own way. I mean, we really struggle with that. You know, if you're in a relationship or a family or something like that, and you feel that you're always on the, on the back end of anything, you don't get your own way, what happens? You kind of build up resentment, don't you? You really feel cheesed off with the whole thing. You get angry inside. We find it really difficult to live in that kind of an environment where we are constantly having to submit ourselves to somebody else's will. But Jesus says here, I always do what pleases him. From the dawn of time, Everything he did, with all his authority and rank and position, he always sought to please the Father. So we've got very interesting relationship, it seems to me, developing here. In John chapter 4 and verses 31 to 34, Meanwhile his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? This is it. My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. That's my whole reason for living. My whole reason for living is to please the Father. The, plother, the Father has endowed him and given to him all authority in heaven and everything's been given to me. But my joy is actually to please the Father. That's what he says. So under the Father. And then in John 14 
And where we've just read in that same passage, Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And then in verse 28 of that same chapter, he says, you've heard me say I'm going away and I'm coming back to you. If you love me, you'll be glad that I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Now, obviously, Jehovah's Witnesses and other people will say, well, there you go, that just shows it. But what you need to see is there's a kind of paradox here. Both are true. He is both equal with and submitted to. There is something very interesting about the relationship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So if we come to the Trinity, how do we kind of unlock that? Well, I'm suggesting that we go to Ephesians and chapter... Oh, sorry, Philippians. I've got that many markers in here again, but Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5. This, to me, I think, is quite a key, crucial clue. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, so he was made of godness. You see what I mean? He got the same nature that God had got. Being very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. He could have done, but he didn't. He could have said, I know my rights. I'm made of godness like you are, Father. So I, well, I, am the, I am the only begotten son. So what about it? But he didn't. He made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. So he kind of humbled himself to come here. He set aside his glory to come here. He emptied himself of his majesty to come here. And then when he came here and he found himself a bloke among a load of other blokes, he carried on. He humbled himself even then. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So you've got a relationship where Jesus is saying, I'll go lower. I'll go lower. And his father's saying, no, I want to lift you higher. Let me lift you higher. No, I'll go lower. Let me lift you higher. So you've got a beautiful circle kind of developing here. So if you, if you summarise what that says, he has the nature of God. He is a chip off the old block, if I can put it that way. That's not being irreverent. He's made of the same stuff that God is made of. They've been together for all eternity. But he does not cling to his rights. He constantly empties himself and delights to please the Father. So God loves his son. I bet he loves his son. The father so loves the son. Can you imagine it? If you had a son like that, you're, well, I love my son. He's not quite like that, I have to say. God has exalted him to the highest place. Now, the Spirit, of course, is included in that. There's not so much teaching on the Holy Spirit and on, as there is on Jesus and the Father, but you get it nonetheless. In John 16 and verse 12 uh, through to 15, <clears throat> in a little while... You will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me. And some of his disciples said to one another, what does he mean by seeing, saying, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me, because I'm going to the Father. They kept asking, what does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he is saying. And Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this, uh, so he said, oh, hang on, I've, I've started too late. Sorry about that. I've started 
Verse 12, I was thinking, I must come to the bit that I want to get to any minute now, but it's, it's actually in the paragraph before, so I wasn't going to make it. Uh, I have much more to say to you in verse 12 of John 16, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears. And he will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will take from what is mine and make it known. In a little while, you will see me no more. And then after a little while, you will see me. Quite interesting there. If you break that down, we're, told, we're not told in this passage, but we're told that the Son, Jesus said that he come to glorify the Father. But we're told here that the Spirit comes to glorify the Son. The Father sends the Son into the world. Jesus said, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to you. So there appears that within the, the, the triune nature of God, there is a kind of chain of authority. There are roles within the Trinity. The Father is the Father. He initiates. He push, he's the one that leads. The Son is the Son who delights to, uh, to serve the Father and is the agent of the Father. The Spirit then is the agent of both of them who comes into the world and spreads abroad and communicates to the Father and the Son. So, I mean, this to me is a, I hope you're getting this, it's a, to me it's a beautiful, something, there is something beautiful going on. The ultimate reality behind everything, therefore, is not a solitary, unitary God, but a God that is actually within himself a family. Uh, at the end of time, there is a passage in Corinthians that I've always felt really um, was, was quite revealing and powerful. Uh, in 1 Corinthians uh, 15... And verses 22 to 28. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own turn. Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him, then the end will come. In other words, Jesus is risen, then those that love him will be raised, then the end will come, the end of the world that is, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself who put everything under Christ. It gets a little bit confusing, this passage. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. Well, did you get that? Okay, so all authority, Jesus said in Matthew 28, is given to me. So God has given everything to his son. Christ then will gather his people. He, he will destroy all that oppose God. He will destroy death itself. And then the end will come. And then he will give it all back to the Father so that God might be all in all. So, so the Father says, Jesus, I want to give you everything. All authority, heaven and earth, it's all yours. I give you a name about every, every name, every name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. I give you authority over all things, all given to you. You're my son. You carry the full rights of being my family. And Jesus says, okay, Dad, I'll take that. I'll take that. I'll receive that. But he only receives that so that when it's all done, when the battle is won, when good has triumphed, when heaven has arrived, he can then say, here, our Father, can have it all back now. That's, what, that's how I understand that passage. So there is a family then that stands at the root in whose image we have been created. Uh, that original family 
In that original family, the father loves and honors the son. He gives, oh, I've already done this, haven't I? I'm ahead of myself. The son submits himself to the father, delights to please the father, but he only receives the honor so that he can give it all back. Now, to me, this is an, a, a wonderful, this is, you know, when you sometimes hear of a vicious cycle. You know, when bad stuff happens, you can get, and that can happen in families. You know, there are loads of families that are slightly disintegrating because of vicious cycles. You know, because of bad stuff and unforgiveness and stuff goes round and round and round. Here you've got the original family that runs on a good cycle. And it feeds on itself. And round and round it goes. The father gives to the son and the son receives it and gives back to the father. The father lifts up the son. The son gets under the father. The father wants to exalt the son. The son wants to submit himself to the father. So you find this... Well, I, I think it's beautiful. I think that this is the ultimate, this is behind the universe. It is out of the overflow of the love between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that the whole world came into being. People say, what was God, somebody asked the other day, what was God doing before he created? But that's what he was doing. They were, they were having a really good family. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit loving one another, but the, but the love that they had between them splashed out. And, and out of that love, the world was created. Mm. Now, I mean, I wanted to say that, that, that when you, the Bible says that the nature of God is love. And I, some years ago, I had a, what I thought was a real revelation. I thought it answered for me the two questions that are most common about this multiple and complex nature of God. The first one is how can God be three in one? I mean, how can you get three persons in one? How's that work? Uh, the second question is why is it so complicated? You know, why... Why, why couldn't it just be simple? You know, certainly Muslims would think that. Why can't you just make it simple? Uh, but of course, the Muslim view of God is very different from that. Quite austere, singular. You know, they, they have no confidence that that, love, that God loves them. But of course, the Bible says God is love. And I realise that actually that is how it works. That is how God can be three in one. Because the nature of God is love. Because out of the self-giving love that there is between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it works. They're kind of glued together. There's no selfishness. Jesus has never said, I want my share. You know, it's not fair. You know, you're always picking on me. You get none of that in the Trinity. He loves the Father, and the Father loves the Son. So there is perfect love flowing between them. I also realize that actually, God couldn't be love if there wasn't multiplicity within the Trinity. He wouldn't have anybody to love. What would God do for all eternity before he created us if there wasn't somebody for him to love? He couldn't be himself. He couldn't, he couldn't be his nature, which is to be love, if he didn't have anybody to love. He would have had to have created us in order to fulfill himself, and that can't be right. God has to have been complete and total within himself, within the Godhead, before ever we came on, or we'd have a needy God that was only created us for selfish reasons because he needed us. So for me, it answered the question. I suddenly understood it. I thought, actually, the fact that God is who he is, the fact that he has that kind of moral character that we were thinking about last week, actually also means that he has to be within himself multiple. There has to be the capacity for God to love within himself if there were nobody else ever in the whole universe. The second thing that uh, struck me about that was, oh, I'll go back on that, I'll come back to that in a minute, is why is it so complicated? It's complicated like that because uh, God is love. And, uh, and, uh, and that's how uh, they relate together and uh, work things out together. The second thing that I wanted to put there was that God is spirit. And, uh, and uh, that's the other reason why it can work. Uh, because God 
God, can, they can get inside one another. I mean, you, you, Jesus said often, the Father is in me and I'm in the Father. And you think, well, how's that work? Well, it does work because that's, that's what you can do when you're spiritual beings. We're not spiritual beings, so we can't do that. I mean, in, in human relationships, a husband and wife come together, they become one flesh. Well, how do they do that? Well, the one enters into the other. You know what I mean? Not fully, but that's, that's the... That's, so something spiritual happens when one person enters into another person. That's why the Bible puts strict rules about what, what to do about it and what not to do about it. Uh, but that, that kind of spiritual thing, God has it in perfection. So they live in each other, so they have no secrets. So the Father, he knows exactly the Father's heart. God doesn't have to say, son, I want you to do this, run this errand for me. He knows what the Father wills. So that kind of internal knowledge of one another is something that we, we would probably find threatening. You know, I'm not sure I want somebody in my soul seeing what it was like on the inside. You know, I might be a bit afraid that I wasn't mm, all that pretty. But they have that kind of... So, so that, that is how it works. And that is why it's uh, complicated. Have you got that? I slightly muddled that, but hopefully it will come through. Uh, now, what are the implications then for humanity uh, in all of this? Uh, well, number one, we are not solitary beings. That's why we're not solitary beings. It's not because I just like people. We often don't. We often don't actually get on that very well with people, but we don't do very well on our own. We, we need people. We are born in families, generally speaking. If we're not, we generally enter into mature life with problems. If we haven't received love when we were younger, we tend to have problems. So we were created to live in relationship, to be in families, to live in towns and villages. And that's what human beings normally do. Sometimes if they're particularly wounded or jaded or in trouble, uh, then they'll escape and look for solitariness. But generally speaking, we come back. Loneliness, therefore, is not all that good for us. The reason why it's not good for us is because we're created in Father's image and he is love. And love makes the world go round, as they say. That's not just a cliche, that is actually true. Love enables us to function as we should, because we're made in his image. Now, what about gender in all of this? This is quite um, uh, volatile stuff for the days that we're living in, when you can be any gender that you happen to want to be. Um, but in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27, we go right back to the beginning where we started. 1 and 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Now, I consider that quite important. The fact that the first thing, in fact, the only thing that we're told about man created in the image of God is that we're created male and female. So male and female is not, according to the Bible, it's not just an accidental bit of biology. There is something deeply wrought in the, in the heart and mind of God in bringing that forth in order for man to live in community and relationship as God always did. Gender, male and female, is God's provision to do that. It's not the only provision, that doesn't mean, but if you lose that within a society, within a family, within a culture, uh, then troubles will ensue. In Genesis chapter 2, 18, we're told that it's not good uh, for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. There's loads of animals and so on, but God uh, decides that he's going to create then the woman to stand with the man. And Genesis 2, verse 21, 
says, The Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place. What was that about? Why would he do that that way? I mean, it is interesting. They do say, doctors say, that the one bit of a body you can, re that you can remove is a rib. It will actually repair itself. So that's rather tender and loving of the Lord. And the Lord put him into a deep sleep. He didn't just rip it out. He gave him kind of a spiritual anesthetic and he operated. But why would he do that? Why would he, why would he take the, the woman out of the man? Well, the, that was the plan. He took the woman out of the man because she was of him so that when they came back together, they would become one again. He took the woman out of the man so that the man would be incomplete without her and she would be incomplete without him. Both of them became slightly unbalanced by the surgery and still are. If you get an all-woman society, eventually it will tend to go unbalanced. If you get an all-male society, it will go unbalanced quite quickly. They, we balance each other. It's part of the plan. It makes for a society. We have yet to see what kind of a society we will produce with our experimentations in some of these things that God has said, this is the way that it's meant to be. So they become one flesh because they were one flesh. They come back together and in the knitting of their lives one to the other, they are bonded again as God planned in them. So they, they were, God's plan was that they would need each other in order to be complete and to be whole. <clears throat> and it, I, I put there, that's the glue that binds society together. I suspect we may find that society slowly becomes unglued as we abandon that. Nothing that God has done is accidental. It is always done for a reason. We always tend to think, have done from the beginning, we know better, we can do this better than you, God. We can be more loving than you are. We won't do it like you are. Uh, but I think we may be surprised at what will happen. So this was God's provision for mankind. This is a design feature. I mean, the, the phenomenal complexity. I mean, okay, it's only a chromosome. You know, a woman has two X chromosomes, a man has an X and a Y. Well, so what's in a chromosome? Well, a huge amount. Huge hormonal differences, huge structural, bodily, biological, emotional differences between men and women. And, uh, and the, you know, there, there, is a, there is a fundamental, we talked about this earlier, there's a fundamental incompatibility between men and women. That is the plan. Uh, somebody wrote into an agony column, um, I think it was a Christian column, uh, saying that they were, they, they were incompatible with their husband and they're thinking they're going to have to have a divorce. And the, and the agony aunt or uncle, I can't remember what, wrote back and said, incompatibility is not the reason for divorce, that's the reason for marriage. Which is, the, yeah, I've thought about that a lot. God's plan was that you would live with somebody that's just slightly out of sync with you so that you would constantly have to adjust and change and alter and learn sympathy and understanding and empathy and get in their shoes and walk with them. And those of us who have been married a long time, we understand that. You know, sometimes people get fed up and they think, oh, I'll go and find somebody else. Sometimes people say, well, I'll go and find somebody of the same gender as me. Then I haven't got to make all that adjustment. That's, of course, happening more and more widespread. But God's plan was that actually within the bonds of marriage, within the society and community we have, we would learn how to love one another. Of course, it's become more complicated when sin came into the world, when selfishness predominated. Because we all say it's not fair. 
you know, he should, he, should, he should do this or she should do that. You know, the number of marriage counselling situations I've come to where often the problems between the two that are sitting before me is that one is a man and one is a woman. And I'm sort of sorted that out and worked out their thing and how they do with it. It probably takes a lifetime to do that. So relationship, therefore, needs long-term love, faithfulness, quality, moral quality that is in the heart of God. God's plan is that we will exhibit the same kind of community as he had in the beginning, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Right, I'm running out of time. I'm running a bit late. Sorry about that, everybody, but we did start a bit late, so there you go. Uh, the dynamics, therefore, of human society, in some senses, imitate the Trinity. Not completely, but in some senses. So if we look at Ephesians, I'm drawing towards a close now, but Ephesians and chapter 5 and verse 21, we find this, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. <coughs> Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. I mean, that has been so used as a strap to whack people with, I have to say. But hear this, husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. And so it goes on. Uh, so you'll notice that there is an appeal to a higher pattern. Again and again, the Bible puts gender and the relationship to gender in a, higher, in a higher context against a backdrop. This is Christ and the church, but it could have been Father and the Son. There's the same kind of quality. The roles, you see, are not interchangeable. That's another thing that you notice. You say, well, you know, okay, we're all told to, um, we're all told to, uh, to submit to one another, and that is true. In verse 21, it says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That means there is, no, there, is, uh, there is no dominance that is permitted here. This is not, this is not a, um, a, a license for men to lord it over women. Uh, it, I, I've often said it's chivalry, not chauvinism. Men should feel protective and caring and look after. That's, that's why they're stronger, generally speaking but not bossy. They're not meant to dominate or lord it, as often, I'm afraid, it happens going wrong. Submission uh, by the wife is freely given. Submit to your husband as to the Lord. In other words, the wife is not, she's not forced to submit. He can't say to her, you've got to submit to me. She has to willingly give that submission. And it's, I think you could say it's unconditional. But of course, some might have problems with that, particularly if they've got um, domineering and difficult and... Uh, uh, ungodly husbands, but they should submit to their husbands in everything according to that word there. The love must be, but the husband's love must be sacrificial. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. A man should be willing to lay his life down for his wife. Now, I know that's overly dramatic and you generally don't get the opportunity to do that every day, but most men inside them have that. They have a sense. You know, if, if a robber broke into my house, I would feel bitterly ashamed if I hid under the bed and Debbie went down to confront him. You know, and, and every man would. You know what I mean? A man has in himself, he does, so believe it or not, he does have a kind of nobility 
and a sense that I should take the rap and I should, I should be the one that stepped forwards and I should be the one that is the protector. I should do that. And that is part of our inheritance. That's what God had placed in the man to be. Often men don't see that and so their testosterone goes rushing off in loads of wrong directions. But that's God's plan for us. So their love should be sacrificial. They should be willing in the end to they lay their life down. It's not so hard to submit to a man that is going to lay his life down for you, I suggest. And that is God's good circle. You know, where you're not arguing about whose role's who, and you did more than me, and you did less than me, and you didn't do that, where you're each seeking to live as they do in the Trinity. This is the key to all relationships, and if we were to read on in Ephesians, in the next chapter, it says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord. For this is right, honour your father and your mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. So children... Uh, obey your parents. And then, of course, in Ephesians, uh, fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and the instruction. In other words, develop a good cycle in your relationships, a serving attitude, giving yourself, humility. But, of course, somewhere, men do have to take a kind of lead. And one of the things I learned, certainly as a pastor and a husband, years ago, was that I couldn't dodge it. I couldn't keep shoving it back on Debbie. I had to do it. I had to carry it. I sometimes had to make decisions for both of us to try and make godly decisions and I knew that I'd have to account for that before God. Goes on, slaves obey your earthly masters with respect and fear, with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ, and so on and so on. So in all our relationships, there is a right way of relating. As the son submits himself gladly to the father, so we live like, blessed are the poor in spirit, they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are you, you know, Jesus said, gave this teaching again and again, uh, all the way through. In 1 Peter 5, 1 to 7, it talks about in the church, leaders are not to be dominant over them. That's what happens with some of the sects and things like that. They are to lead as examples to the flock, humbly. You know, you've got to, in the end of the day, if you're a leader, you've got to be a leader, but you've got to do it humbly and not pushing people around or dominating them. So this it seems to me, what, what is in the ultimate relationship, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, is the key then to all our relationships. The human race would be enjoying a much better time than it is if only we knew that. If only we were set free from the bondage of feeling that we just came from monkeys and apes. And therefore we live by the law of the jungle. If only we realise where we truly come from, our society and life will be different. Okay. <sighs> Good. Well, it took a long time on that. Sorry, everybody. A lot, lot of material. Um, we're gonna, we're, I'm just going to put the thing up for the next one because we have had as... Uh, I think... Did you hint at that, Ian? Uh, no, you didn't, no. Uh, we, have, we have determined that we're going to start a new course at the end of October. So it's actually Halloween evening, so I hope you're not out letting off fireworks on that evening. If you can mark that in your diaries, it will go and run for six weeks, God willing, uh, through the whole of November and into the first week of December. And the, the, uh, the series will be The Coming of Christ, and, uh, and the themes for that are What Went Wrong, Who is Jesus?, what happened on the cross? A lot of people, somebody once said to me, how can it be that somebody dying 2,000 years ago affects me? Well, we'll try and answer that question. The final return, what is going to happen at the end of the world and what does the Bible say about it? What must I do to be saved? Not maybe you're not asking that question, but you might be by then. Uh, and then the, the last one is, what does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to be a disciple? The dating for that is the 31st of October to the 5th of December. 
and uh, we'll let you know timings and things like that uh, nearer the time. Lovely. Thank you, everybody. That's finished for the whole course. I hope you found some help in it. And it hasn't been too heavy or long-winded. Bless you. I've got a couple of questions, not huge numbers. I mean, if, if it stimulates any others, we'll do our best to take those as well um, in the, the time that we've got. But we won't, you know, we won't string it out unnecessarily. Um, first question, do you accept that the Bible has been wrongly translated over the last 2,000 years? Uh, the answer is yes, but with limits. The fact is there are so many documents going back now really to the pretty well the beginning uh, that it's, it's very hard for them to survive in the ordinary marketplace. And the Bible is, has more fragments and pieces and parts of it than any other ancient document by far. And uh, people often you know, draw upon what they consider to be the inaccuracy of Bible translation as an excuse for not doing what it says. I would counsel against that. My belief is that God has actually overruled and overseen it and you will find that if you can go back to the very original documents, which you can in some cases, it's pretty well spot on. But there will be some translations that are generally regarded as not quite as good as others. Not exactly wrong, but, uh, but not quite so, don't carry the feeling and the, uh, so on, absolutely. Uh, and also, of course, it needs to be said that sometimes there are, there are Bibles that are paraphrases where they have to try and bring it up to um, modern thought forms and sentence structures and things like that. So if it were just uh, put down in the strict form that it was in the Greek from the original, it would, it would not read very well. So there's been a bit of that happening as well. To answer that, Peter. So the bigger problem is not that it's uh, been inaccurate in its translation, but that we have interpreted it differently and often got that wrong at that level. Is that about more or less? So that was really the question. And uh, I said yes to that. I do think that that probably is the great, the great difficulty all the time is for us to make up our own mind of what we want, what we want God to be, what we want truth to be. I live with my own truth. And people sometimes say to me, I know what I believe. But I mean, at the end of the day, reality is not dependent on what I believe. Reality is reality. You know what I mean? I can say I don't believe in gravity, but if you, not believing in gravity, step out of a very high building, gravity will still work for you. So I don't recommend it. So my view has come increasingly that the Bible is the most incredible and miraculous book that I've found. And I went through a stage of thinking, well, maybe that bit's wrong, and maybe that bit's wrong, and maybe that bit, that doesn't fit in with modern ideas. And I've had to repent of that, really, and come back and realise, particularly when I started studying creation, that actually you can go back to the Bible and find it phenomenally accurate when it shouldn't be accurate. You know, I think if, if anything has happened to me during the years, it's been a greater sense of confidence in the accuracy of the Bible. And I feel pretty confident that I can take it literally in pretty well every circumstance. Unless it obviously doesn't mean for you to take it literally. Yeah, Chris. It depends on the person reading it and where your heart is with God as to what you make out of it. In other words, you can read into it what you want to see. I mean, I suppose for me, probably one of the key things about the whole course, this first course, foundational course, is to try and um, uh, assert 
the relevance, the authority and the accuracy of the Bible as the Word of God. There is no other book like it and studies have been done with, with codes and all sorts of hidden things in it that, that make it, I don't know that very much about that, but I believe that makes it even more amazing that only God really could have done that and produced a book with that kind of complexity and accuracy. So I hope, I, I hope that I've done a bit of good for the Bible and if you're still a bit sceptical or uncertain about these things that you won't give up the search but you will continue to be curious. I mean, we live in a culture that is very unbiblical where the Bible, generally speaking, is rejected as being um, rubbish. The more the, the, the you read to this, need to read Scripture as a whole, rather than bits and bobs. The, the better you know it, reading whole books of it, the more it's likely to be a guide to you. I mean, somebody once coined the, for the term, the maker's instructions. You would generally not buy an appliance, well maybe you would if you're a bloke, but normally you wouldn't buy an appliance and just try and make it work without studying the maker's instructions. Yet many people live their lives on the opinions of others and the pressures of their peer group and on the attitudes that's taken by the government and what the television says and actually your life is such a precious thing don't, don't risk it on those things. So learn to read the maker's instructions and if at the end of the day you say no it doesn't work for me okay but at least give it a go and read it and I recommend Matthew, Mark, Luke and John go home and read that. Okay another question, question number two should we refute other religions or do we make excuses that they might be included in the kingdom? I mean, there would certainly be many that would, that would say that all roads lead to God and, you know, so that's it. Um, I don't believe that. Uh, and it says, in the light of John 14, 6, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. So lovingly and gently, you have to say that by the scripture itself, Christianity is an exclusive faith. It says, this is the way. There isn't any other way. And uh, it's not, a, you know, DIY, find your own way there, somehow or another, everything goes. It says, actually, we've so badly uh, got lost on the way. It will only be uh, if we follow the, the path that God has given to us that we'll find our way home again. It also goes on to say, I think, as we've said before, that the way that leads to life is narrow and many people do not find it. That's a bit of a, a, bit of a, a troubling thought for our day and age. And, uh, and it seems to me that we have an obligation, certainly those of us that, uh, that feel clearly that Jesus is the way to share that wherever we can and try and encourage others to find also the way. And that is another fundamental purpose of this course. Good, okay, I've done all the questions that are written down. Uh, anything that jumps from that, anything else? If not, we'll close. God bless you all. Thank you for coming and listening patiently through what I know are quite long talks. I mean, I do, I often am exercised over it and, uh, and feel bad about it, but I still give it all to you anyway. <laughs> and uh, pray that God will take it and use some of it for his, for his glory. Let's just bow in prayer together. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you're the living God and you've been with us here through this course. I thank you, Lord, that uh, some of us certainly at least, maybe many of us have felt your presence have heard you speaking to us and have felt stimulated and challenged by that. And I pray that by your spirit you will continue to lead and guide us. You give us a sense of curiosity to seek after truth. 
and that we would continue, Lord, to make discoveries in our own adventure of living and ultimately come to know you. Whom to know is life in all its fullness. So hear our prayer, Lord. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Great. Thank you.